Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with the brilliant Dr. Amy Pistone, a professor of classics at Gonzaga University. Her specialties are Greek tragedy, as well as feminist theory and inclusive pedagogy. She has also worked on symposiastic culture in the ancient world and modern uses of classics in pop culture, including Tolkien and fan fiction, and is very interested in ways that Greek and Roman culture interact with our contemporary world. She is also a member of the steering committee for the Women's Classical Caucus and a co-chair of the Classics and Social Justice Group. We chatted about the advantages and disadvantages of heavily favoring one ancient culture, the opposition to scholars comparing the ancient and modern world, her love for ancient Greek tragedies, and why the Pax Americana is the new Ozymandias. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me this morning for you, evening for me. What is time anymore? I don't I don't have any concept of time. <laughs> nobody but, knows. <laughs> nobody knows anymore. But I do want to just uh, like kick us off and ask you, you know, how did you get into classics? That is a meandering question <laughs> or a meandering answer, at least. I actually started off in undergrad as in, uh, an engineering major. Um, and I was taking Greek mythology as a breath requirement and just fell in love. And it was, it was so much more fun. Like I was just so much more taken by the stuff we were reading and asked the TA for my class, like if I wanted to study more of this, what do I do? And so that was really my kind of gateway into classics. And then he said, if I wanted to go to grad school, I needed to learn Greek. And I was like, we really just jumped a couple steps from, <laughs> I would like to take another classics class to, well, if you want to go to grad school. But no, it was it was just not something I knew that you could major in um, or like pursue as a career path growing up. You know, I'd really enjoyed, we read some classical stuff in high school English um, and it was, I enjoyed it, but it just wasn't something that I knew. We didn't have Latin at my high school. And so it was not something I knew was kind of an option, but sort of stumbled my way into classics and I have just loved it ever since, but it was, it was really just a fortunate accident. That sounds kind of like my path. I mean, just out of curiosity, because I, I feel like sometimes the classes I talk to, it's exactly like the same kind of thing as me where, was it actually classics that kind of caught your attention or was it was it Egypt was it ancient Egypt <laughs> um so I I don't think I was that into Egypt my partner was an Egyptology uh major and so there was like a lot of Egypt we've been dating for 16 years or something so it's hard to go back and like extricate the Egypt out of that but uh, yeah I don't actually know that it was it was super I really liked Greek mythology um so I was more of Percy Jackson wasn't a thing at the time, but I, I would have been much more like the Percy Jackson route into uh, into classics. Um, really loved. I still actually have a book of like Greek myths to read aloud that was um, Greek myths sort of cleaned up for kids. So it didn't have all of the sex and violence and things. They were like a nicer versions of, of Greek myth. Um, so yeah, I think 
it was really through like the the story and the mythology side of things that got me got me hooked but since then I have had a lot of Egypt in my life as <laughs> as a result of my uh my Egyptology partner that's so wonderful I I will admit that no it was definitely Egypt that like hooked me young you know I think they got me at uh oh gosh I want to say I was like maybe 12 11 something something in that range and then right I was, yeah yeah you know, I was definitely like, oh, there is nothing more wonderful and beautiful than Egypt. And I will study this. And then I like talked to an Egyptologist and they were like, great. So you're going to learn like four or five languages. And then you're going to do this, this, and this, and this. And I was like, never mind. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I had no, you know, cause when you're little, you think like, oh, it's, it's, you know, they got like the picture writing and, and that's cool, I guess. And, but yeah, the number of different, having been exposed, like you, know, you got middle Egyptian, you got hieratic and you got demonic and our COVID summer project was that we, well, he relearned uh, Coptic and I learned Coptic as part of, so that was, turned out to be super cool because I learned a lot more about, about like Egyptian language stuff. And my students are always super, whenever Egypt comes up, I'm like, well, let me tell you things that I learned. Okay. So let's talk about the language. It's a whole different system. It's not even, it's not, you know, in the Indo-European, it's not like Greek or any of our like you know romance language it's a whole separate thing and my students are just super into it all the time so um it, it ended up being but yeah everyone else was making sourdough starters and I was learning Coptic <laughs> no I think that's that's I love that stuff I mean you know when I talk to friends now all over the world I'm like so what were you doing during COVID like what was your big project were you one of those like COVID bakers or the COVID TikTokers you know and uh it's the answers were, were quite varied actually because some people were like yeah I started to bake a little my friend got super into like knitting and crocheting and then she ended up knitting like 20 sweaters and I was like oh okay that's dedication I knit but like not that much like couple yeah. scarves that's it I was like no I just spent my lockdown just you know reading um classics books after classics book after classics book and then started a podcast because you know that's what one does after you read a bunch of books I mean that that is still a productive you know I I kind of learned a, a language ish and that was mostly like I did not develop any whole new hobbies like some people learned an instrument or I didn't quite get to a lot of those things. I uh, I taught classes over Zoom and I learned Coptic sort of, and that was that was kind of the extent of my cool self improvement over COVID era. That's fine. I mean, you know, <laughs> I you know, no one could concentrate. It was you know, the world kind of like you know went to shit. So oh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I did watch a lot of trash TV. And in my defense, I did a lot of, I was all up on, you know, I watched the pools documentary. I watched Tiger King. I was very, I had my finger on the pulse of dumb TV that everyone was watching. See, I didn't even do that. When I watched TV, I was like, I'm just going to watch some house hunters international because since I can't travel the world, I will travel the world through these people. Live vicariously. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So that was kind of like a fun COVID activity. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, getting back to classics, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I do love these tangents, but getting back to a little more classically themed things. So obviously mythology is super, super powerful. And that's generally how most people get into it. That was definitely how I got into it. But, you know, was it, all facets of you know classical mythology or was it did you find yourself leaning more toward like greek mythology or roman mythology or i was very greek i, I was very much a greek kind of person and some classicists are a lot more well-rounded than i am and i i my undergrad like every time once i met the the things you had to do for like the greek and the roman side of things 
when I had a choice, I almost always went with more Greek stuff. So I am I am one of those very lopsided classicists. <laughs> um, I am I am now supplementing by, but I mean, even through grad school, I, I definitely leaned towards more Greek stuff. And so, you know, my my breadth of examples and things when I teach a class that covers like both Greek and Roman time periods, I, I do start to get a little out of my depth when I'm like, as long as there are not too many follow-up questions, I can teach this material. But I, I had so many homework assignments where like students would ask me questions. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I haven't spent that much time thinking about like Ovid's Tristia. So I'm going to go look that up and I will get an answer to you because I don't know. Um, so yeah, as soon as, as soon as we get out of like after around, you know, the Alexander the Greatish time, and you know we move into to Roman period. I, I start to get a little bit fuzzier with you know the, the just not not on as firm a ground because I didn't spend as much time on those things um, in undergrad and grad school. So I've uh, I have been learning a lot of things because my students have lots of really good and difficult questions. <laughs> but yeah, I was I was very much on the Greek side. I started with the Greek language before learning Latin and you know Greek. Like, Greek tragedy has always been the thing that was kind of nearest and dearest to my heart. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I definitely, um, I would say I did the same thing. I, I didn't actually, to this day, I still don't really like studying the Romans like at all. <laughs> so, you know, when someone was like, let's talk about Rome, I'm like, can we not, can we talk? <laughs> like, you know, so it's, it's quite funny that I, I have a classics podcast and then I do have uh, people asking or wanting to know about Rome and I'm like, that's uh that's not what I do. <laughs> Rome. Okay. Sure. Yeah. There have always been more people who were like equipped and experts at like equipped to, you know, teach Latin language and teach. Um, and now I'm at a place where there's like, there's two of us. And so I, teach a lot like there's a much bigger range whereas um I taught at Notre Dame for a couple of years and there because the department was so much bigger I like I did tragedy and it was like a smaller box because you know there were a ton of people who did Latin stuff and I was never really going to be asked to teach like a Roman allergy class or something like that um but being at a smaller place where like oh nope there's there's just two of us really so I teach pretty much all the Greek stuff. And then, you know, for civilization classes where there's kind of, we're, you know, looking at like a theme across the ancient world, uh, I teach a lot more Roman stuff. So it has, it's been interesting. It's not necessarily what my preparation like in, in grad school uh, really prepared me for, but I have, I have gotten to learn a ton more because when we teach, I was teaching a gender and sexuality in the ancient world class this last semester. And, you know, I mean, we gotta we gotta move into periods that are not Greece at some point, and so it was a good chance to, well, to tap a lot of friends to. I was like, hey, you know lots of things about this time period and this topic. Would you like to come help teach my class for this day? But it's you know, it's also I mean, it's it's a cool opportunity to really broaden the amount of things that I know about, and it's a it's a weird, interesting lens into a topic to go like to kind of be coming at it through students and like the questions they ask and the things they're interested in because it's not always the same things that kind of the dominant scholarly you know people who work on Virgil what questions are they asking those aren't always the same questions that students are asking or you know heavily Hellenist kind of scholar is asking and so it is really it, it's opened up interesting pathways into some of these things or some of these topics and things um but yeah no I'm I'm very much one of those like all Greek all the time kind of classes. I don't blame you. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with it, but actually now I am a bit curious, you know, do you think it's a bit of a disservice that if people go through 
like a at least an undergrad program and at, at least at mizzou they would let me basically just do all the greek stuff i think i took maybe one or two roman courses and you know i still graduate with a degree in ostensibly classics but when people hear that like i don't actually know about rome like a lot uh, and w when they're like well what do you know about it i'm like well i took two classes you know and then they go really you're a classics major so like <laughs> is it kind of a disservice do you think that we allow people to kind of pick so early like i understand at the grad level you have to pick because you can't you know there's just there's so much that you should probably pick which way you want to go and that's fine at the grad level but i i sometimes i kind of think maybe it would be better to make sure people are, are, are a little more balanced because sometimes i notice myself being a little sheepish i'm never ashamed but i'm a little sheepish about yeah i got classics degree but i don't really know much about rome i only really know something about greece but my the name of my major implies that i should know a lot more of both so like is that do is, is that actually a problem i mean i think part of it depends what you think the like what the goal like what the the end of a classics major is like what's the purpose of it and to my mind some i mean i think there, there's a value to having some kind of breadth of knowledge right but i think letting people be you know letting people make what they want of a degree is, you know, so I mean, a lot of programs, we're, we're in the process of rethinking our curriculum. So I've been looking at a lot of other programs and seeing how they do things. And some have a certain required, like you need to take one like Roman history, one here, one, you know, you need to be at least a certain level of breadth. I think there is some value in letting people make what they want of the, the degree. And so I know a lot of programs are accepting more, like we're very like, electives, bring them on in. You got something in history or religious studies or whatever. If there's someone who is engaging with the classical world, because I think the direction of the field is heading much more in opening up our view. So, you know, it used to be very like, well, you got your Greek side and your Roman side and thinking more about Greece and Rome as part of like the ancient Mediterranean world, looking at other languages, looking, you know, Egyptology, Near Eastern studies, people who work on Judaism, people who work on thinking about like what the ancient world looks like more broadly conceived. And so I think having that kind of flexibility is great because someone who really wants to work on you know, Mesopotamian civilization is going to be able to make more, you know, if they, because especially a lot of places don't have a major of Near Eastern studies. Um, Berkeley did, but not a lot of places do. And so letting it be something that that has a home in classics or ancient, you know, ancient Mediterranean, whatever we kind of want to want to rebrand the field as, but the fact that it can be like, I want to work on the interactions between Greece and Egypt and the Near East is part of classics in the same way that like, I want to think about how like Rome and North Africa and, you know, out like the Roman provinces. Um, I think those are all parts of classics and beyond having just like a basic familiarity with the time and the place involved. I, I kind of like that it is something you you can't know all of it. And so it's something that lets people find the home that they are most interested in um, and then dig like a deeper hole there instead of like a bunch of very shallow wells. They can dig one really deep well in the stuff that most interests them. But yeah, I like a lot of times people want to talk to me about Roman philosophy, which I, I just don't care that much about stoicism and, you know, or like the Roman military. And here I work on class. Like, I, I mean, I know, I know a basic amount about these things, but they're just not the things that have most interested me. And I think that's, I think that's okay, right? There's all of like the literature and the art and the language and the coinage and the, you know, there's so many different specialties that are under this umbrella of what we think of as classics. And I don't know. I think it's, I think it's okay that not everyone walks away with the same 
understanding of of everything like I'm military history even in the Greek world just isn't my strong suit I you know I love to talk about like oh the importance of this battle but like I don't know what formation they use I don't care like I just I don't care about military history like that kind of like what battle what happened where and when did the horses round the flank and do the thing like I'm not interested I, I guess that is a very meandering answer too <laughs> but I I think it's okay I think I think there is some value to everyone taking a couple basic like a whirlwind history survey course or a a lit survey course where like, you know, you learn the major genres, you know who these big names are. You learn basically like what were the major conflicts in ancient Mediterranean history. But beyond that, I like the flexibility that it has that you can you can really think about like comparative mythology if you want to look at like, I don't know, Near Eastern versions of these goddesses and how that compares to, you know, you can look at like Isis and Ishtar and Aphrodite and and look at that kind of parallels. Or you can look at what kind of formation Alexander used at the battle the, the thing you know those are, yeah. those are both parts of of the same field but there is a lot of different options there and paths people can take yeah I would agree and I I love what you said about sort of part of opening up the field is allowing people to choose hey if you want to just like really do all your stuff and like just the Greeks or whatever you know we can and you know I do talk quite often about how you know I'd love to broaden because right now when we do think of classics unfortunately it's Greece and Rome. It's not <laughs> North Africa. It's not Egypt. It's not Mesopotamia. It's not, you know, ancient, whatever. You know, there's so many different civilizations. It's not just Greece and Rome. And I hate how it's this binary idea. So kind of with opening up the field and letting other people take other classes, you know, I, I would have loved, appreciated so much, you know, more Egyptology. I wish there was an Assyriology class that I could have taken. I, you know, <laughs> I feel sad when I'm like, no, we had nothing. But I know in classics, we kind of go back and forth, right? Where people argue like ad nauseum over what do we do about the language requirement? Because for some people that's quite an impediment and for some people it's mm -hmm. not. And I understand both sides of that because I had a weird situation when I was an undergrad and I had some health issues. And so it kind of screwed with my graduation timeline. And what I ended up doing was I took one semester of ancient Greek, but then because I wasn't going to graduate on time and I wasn't going to do a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to study abroad, which was going to mess me up further. My advisor ended up being like, well, you took AP French in high school. If you want, you can transfer those credits over and then not take any more languages to graduate and you would have it satisfied. And I kind of went back and forth. And then I was like, no, I'll be a disappointment to classicists. You got to take the languages. And then I'm like, no, who says I have to take these languages? It's not, <laughs> we're not all philologists. I'm like, yes, I'm going to transfer in my French if I don't have to do it because those classes are like six credit hours and they really kill your GPA if you get a B. So where do you kind of stand on this in terms of opening up classics? Like, do we allow the languages to be optional for those who know they want to pursue it, they want to go on possibly, or they just they, they just want to take them. But for those of us who either they can't for whatever reason, or they don't want to, should we still allow them to get a classics degree? Yeah. So Berkeley had a classical languages major, which is what I ended up doing. And it had a classical civilization major. You could do the one that was much more language intensive, which is what I did. And the cost of that is I didn't get like some of the broader, you know, I'm going to read lots of works by Aristotle and think about, you know, like whatever, those kind of broader things, because we were reading less, but in, in the original language and reading it closely and thinking about grammar. Um, and that comes at a cost. There's only so many hours and, you know, people need breath requirements and, and, 
there's a million reasons why you, you can't have it both ways. And so for people who want to go on and do graduate school, for the most part, the expectation is that you can read these things in the original. And depending what kind of work you want to do, it's going to vary whether you need to have Greek and Latin or other languages or, you know, that that's going to vary depending on like a complex site title, you know, style degree is going to have like maybe you just need Greek and not Latin, you know. So anyway, there are a bunch of vary, but the idea, I think for people who know they want to go on to do graduate work, the, the expectation is still very much like you need to be at least proficient in the languages in part because the way that programs are set up, you do need to be able generally to teach the languages as that's you know, a part of how programs are set up. And that may change. I tend to think that for a lot of the things that we talk about as being the core of the humanities, languages are great and you learn a ton of interesting things, but do you need to learn Greek or Latin to do the humanities type project in the ancient world? Like, I don't think that you do. And I think if we want to think about like being able to think critically, being able to like think about empathy, imagine yourself in a different situation, if you want, you know, being able to put together an argument, none of those require studying Greek or Latin. Um, and I think there's a ton to be gained and we do require one or the other language for people at Gonzaga. And I tend to think that there are a lot of different, like we act like languages are the thing, like the quintessential thing that classics is. And we could, like, we don't act like material culture is. Material culture is super important to how we understand the ancient world. We don't require people to take a material culture class. We don't require people to take a any other subspecialty. We don't give that pride of place. And like languages are the, the thing that you have to have, the sine qua non of, of classics. And I think, I don't know, I tend to not be on that side of things. Like I tend to think there are people who walked away from their undergrad with a much better understanding of social history you know I didn't learn anything about like theory whatsoever like what is like feminist history look like what is like that just wasn't something that came up until grad school of thinking about what having these different types of informed readings of thinking about you know what are the different types of theoretical approaches to the ancient world that wasn't something that we did because I was busy learning about like what the uses of the data are and they're both useful <laughs> but it's I think it's not like one or the other I mean, what I use now more than I would say like my understanding like what does the ablative do I use much more thinking about how like feminist scholarship thinking about like Marxist approaches to things like those are much more important to the way that I think about the ancient world now and so the fact that languages are what is given the number one as opposed to like I can't I can't tell you a darn thing about material like I you know I have to ask friends to be like am I misreading the statue entirely like am I getting anything of the right stuff out of this like tell me why we know this vase painting is this and not that and it would have behooved me to spend a little bit more time thinking about how material culture informs our understanding of the ancient world than the exclusive focus on languages I was encouraged you know the language thing gets that like oh yes what a good classics major you are you you have spent a lot of time on languages and I tend not to to have that kind of approach like I think I think there are again like a bunch of different emphases that that someone could have and and how they understand classics that said like I love I, I do actually love studying and teaching and doing stuff with languages I don't want it to sound like I hate languages I um dead languages were the thing that made me actually like languages after trying to kind of scam my way out of language classes in high school to be like I took French one and then like I went through the, the French two book on over the summer so I could take French through the next year so I could get like my three years of language requirement out of the way with only actually having to take two years of language 
And I was like, good, I will never take another language again in the rest of my life. I've done it. I've, <laughs> I have scammed the system two years of French and I'm done. And then ended up pursuing for the rest of my, my <laughs> career and life. I, I have decided to do languages. So it's um, funny how those things happen. That's great. That's great. Oh man. Yeah. I, I had, I had friends who definitely, they were like, languages is, is not easy for me. I don't like it. So how do I take, you know, the least amount, but so I can pass. And so, no, I, I totally, I get it. So I know a lot of people have very bad experiences with language teaching. Like I do very deeply believe that anyone can get okay at languages. Like the idea that like some people just can't do languages. Like I, I really kind of chafe at that idea because I think that anyone can be perfectly possible. Like not everyone's going to be a great linguist or like a great philologist, but kind of anybody can be perfectly. And that's something that I've really tried to do a lot with my Greek classes. Like I know like ancient Greek sounds very daunting, but like anybody can do this if you, if you want to, like, this is something that people can do and we'll find a way for it to work for, for individual people. But I have never gotten so much pushback on like something I said online. Like I say tons of just dumb stuff on the internet all the time on Twitter. And I have never gotten so much like angry vitriol from as when I said that anybody can learn Greek. Like people, I mean, people came out of the woodwork, just like nameless kind of troll accounts being like, only the top one to 3% of people can learn Greek, like based on IQs. Like, okay, for like, we're not even getting into the problems with IQ as a metric, but one to three, like that's such an oddly specific number that you just pulled out of, like the number of people who were like, no, Greek is something like, Greek is a language and our brains are very good at learning languages. It's their patterns and any, anyone can learn Greek. The fact that people have hinged this kind of like specialness to like someone who can learn Greek is extra special and smart in a way that is different than any other kind of intelligence is so weird and toxic to me. So anyway, sorry, that was, <laughs> but I, I mean, I have never seen so many angry people at come after something I have said on Twitter as when I said like, anybody can learn Greek. Like if, if you want to put in the time, like it, it's not beyond anyone. It's interesting how people feel really passionate when I'm going to argue that most of the people who were coming out of the woodwork, they probably don't know Greek. Like, like I'm sure a fair bit maybe had taken something, but not every single troll. I mean, it's almost, I, I find it interesting because it's like, I know the languages sort of play a gatekeeping role a huge mm -hmm. one. Yeah. And it's interesting how people I've seen people who've never really taken a language are really invested in maintaining that sort of gatekeepery status. And I'm just I think, like, I think a lot of people are really, yeah. Like the idea of the idea of gates being kept, I think is like important to a certain type of person who like, you know, no, we have to have like, there need to be standards and rigor out there and we need to maintain these like, and yeah. No, I'm with you. I think it's, it's weird. Yeah. I, although it's, it's funny. Cause on the, uh, I feel like on the academic side, the people, the, the people who are interested in keeping that gate up are those who like went through all these years of language. And then, cause I've, I've heard people tell me things like, well, no, I mean, you need the languages. We can't just make them optional. We can't make it easier for you. You need to pay your dues. You need to work hard. I mean, no, the, I mean, the, if I went through it, you can get through it, you know, chin up. And I'm like, but that's so toxic just because you can get through it. I, I don't know. Could I get through it? Maybe. It's such a survivorship bias kind of thing. Like the people who, 
thrived under a system, like are the ones who like it worked for them and they made it through and they did well. And so then they go on to like become the next generation of professors who think that this system is fine because it worked for them. And it's this like self-perpetuating thing, but like we have no idea how many people with brilliant insights into these texts and into understanding ancient societies, like how many people did we lose along the way because this wasn't a system that worked for everybody. And I think there's such a, I see this all over the place of people who go through something that's shitty, like a, I mean, it, 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 any kind of like a school that was bad or whatever it is, like there's the type of person who is like, well, I paid my dues. Everyone else needs to do this. Like I'm gonna pay it forward because uh, like a hazing kind of mentality. And there's the people who get through the system and are like, no one else should go through this. It sucked. And I'm gonna make sure that no one else has to persevere through that. And like, I just think that's such a different, I mean, you see the tangent, but people with, with student loan debt, there's like a huge discord around like, I worked hard to pay, great. Like, should everyone else have to go through, like it sucked. I'm sorry that you had to do that. Should you then make everyone else continue to go through it? Or should you try to make sure that we dismantle a system that really sucks? And I think the same thing happens with how we train classicists. It worked for some people. And the fact that a lot of those people are in positions where they get to make decisions about what disciplines and what, you know, what prerequisites and programs look like means that they're, they have no real incentive to change that unless people alert them to like, here are all of the ways that this isn't, like this system is not working for everyone. And we're losing people along the way that could be making really wonderful contributions. But the way that it has always been constituted as a field is kicking people out and it's keeping people out of out of that gate and maybe we could like open the gate or like remove the gate there are ways to make the gate not be such a problem definitely and so i don't know i i kind of stay on the periphery because i don't want to wade too much into the languages also i mean it did its sort of gatekeepery job i suppose because i didn't you know just say all right i'm gonna graduate like three years late, two years late and just do them and then go on to grad school. No, I, I kind of was like, all right, I'll take my uh, AP French and get out of here, you know? <laughs> but I know I agree though, because I'm just thinking it's 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 been a really interesting experience, I would say, because when I first got out of undergrad, I think I had a more sort of traditional classics mindset in that, you know, I was like, okay, you know, after you do this, okay, maybe you should go into grad school if you intend to pursue classics or yeah, you can do things that are inspired by the ancient world, but you know, that's kind of firmly in its alt act reception-y way. And I was like, that's separate. It's fine. And then when I got into my career really in, in politics and I realized so much of like the political stuff that I was going through, I could find a way anyway and re relate it back to classics and then I started to change and I was like oh 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 wait no I can use the classics background that I earned and this actually is helping me in my like everyday job and then uh, I realized that more after coming to Athens and, and doing my modern like political science program classics would like come back with a force and and like things that I suppose some classicists would think about, but only in the ancient context, they've come back with a force, a passion. And I didn't even think about as like, I didn't think it was a form of reception really just because it didn't occur to me. And uh, I would say just like uh, for context, I just got through this, this wonderful class on uh, migration and asylum in Southeastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And one of our units was talking about like Turkey's response to the 2015 so-called refugee crisis. And I remember my professor was telling us there were 
two operations in Greece going on. And uh, one of them was Xenio Zeus. And I was like, you know, that sounds like really familiar. I think I remember. <laughs> uh, like, I, tell me more, tell me more. And, uh, you know, and then she went into, I mean, she's a modern political science professor and she was going into the history of guest friendship. And I was like, am I in a classics course suddenly? Like, did, did I just like... <laughs> go into a whole different universe of programs like like what why are we talking about guest friendship and hospitality and she's like because all these modern policies are based on this ancient concept she's like why do you think turkey had so many problems with the refugee crisis did you look at their policy and i was like no but i will now so i wrote a paper on it and i was like oh my god it's so true. Part of why Turkey's policy was so shitty and it was like doing its thing is because it's based on ancient concepts. So I was like, where was this? Why are we not teaching about migration in classics programs? I'm sorry. Like that's the basis for modern foreign policy. You think that these things are not connected? Uh-uh. I beg to differ. <laughs> so it's classics comes back in so many different ways outside of the traditional context. So I'm, I, I'm so over the gatekeeping thing because I'm just like, it's all going to come back somehow, some way, right? Well, and there's so many, like, I know it's it's changing a bit, but there's so many people, like, in the discipline of, like, professional classicists who have this idea that reception work is not, like, not real classics. And, you know, I think some of it comes from sort of a snooty, like, looking at, like, classics and pop culture. Like, pop culture is low culture and classics is high culture. Like, there's a lot of class and whatever going into that but you know I mean I think those are the places that are most interesting I so the the class I mentioned earlier was teaching it was sex and gender and we talked a lot about ancient like the use of the ancient world in thinking about modern like gender identities and sexualities and I mean a lot of my students were just like I had no idea like that you know they had to do like a little a little mini research project and present it to a public like a public facing audience and you know, people were talking about like one of my students who is a um, Spanish major. And I was like, you know, there's this production that I'm obsessed with that happened. It's by an Argentinian author. And I was like, you know, like it, it was kind of commenting on reflecting on um, the dirty wars in Argentina. And she's like, oh, I know all about the dirty wars. I was like, okay, like you'd be a great person to talk about this. And she, it was so cool because like she did this production or she did this presentation on how um, the play Antigone was used as kind of a protest piece to talk about like the disappeared people in during this like military dictatorship. But I mean, like the responses that both her classmates and her did, like the reflections to this were like, I had no idea that these things were were still so relevant. And, you know, I mean, people thinking about like just different, I mean, a ton of like, I have a lot of queer students who had never, weren't classics majors who were like, I've never like understood why people say like Sapphic, like what that means. And like, now like we read Sappho and we talked about the like the history of, of who Sappho is and the debates about like who she is and what she was talking about. And I think those moments of, of seeing how the modern world is, especially like modern kind of like Western or, you know, European and US and, but I mean, I say this with heavy ironic quotes, but like, thanks to colonialism, I mean, European cultural artifacts got exported everywhere and so like you have these things that are like very potent symbols and which doesn't mean they don't come with baggage but like they're very potent symbols of how we think about identity and history and yeah like when we anchor something in history like our our shared identity is we welcome strangers we welcome guests we take care of them like that is a very powerful piece of rhetoric and I think 
when we act like that's not real classics to talk about how people are like playing with and subverting and do whatever, you know, whatever use they're putting Medusa figures or Xenia or, you know, whatever these things are, acting like that's not a serious object of inquiry just bugs me so much because like that's, that's where the classical world has all this value to a modern, like to the modern world is thinking about the intersections, not just thinking about what happened in the plague of Athens and, and we're not going to talk about the modern world at all, but like, why does, why does that matter? Does that tell us anything about our lives right now? Like, otherwise, to some extent, it, it's sort of trivia. And I mean, which is great. Like, I love trivia, <laughs> but you know, if you're not thinking about like, okay, but so what, why does it matter that we're talking about how asylum functions? Like, why does, does this idea inform, like, does it tell us anything now? Is there some value we can gain from it? And I think that not everyone agrees with me, but I think, you know, that some people <laughs> are sort of like a modern narcissism of like, but how does it matter to me right now? But I do think that if we ignore that and we act like that's not part of our, our field of study, we're passing up a huge opportunity to think about kind of the relevance for people who aren't going to go on to pursue like a graduate degree and this stuff. Like, why, why does it matter to econ nature, like how Greeks thought about something like, you know, those, those kind of connections are why it matters to people who are going to go live like full rich citizen lives out in the world. Like it's, it's those connections. It's not like, can you name every single battle in the Peloponnesian war? Like those, those are not the, the key takeaways. It's the, the broader kind of connections between the ancient world and the modern world. I couldn't agree more. I mean, and it's interesting because I often find myself asking both myself sort of rhetorically and actually asking, well, what respectfully though, like then what's really the point of studying history if we just want to study history and kind of go, oh, this is what these people did, you know, those thousands of years ago. Okay, that's cool. Put it away in a box. Like, right. I'm just kind of like, why would you study? I mean, yeah, I love learning about the past. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's why I majored in classics. But I'm also <laughs> like, but 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 this should go somewhere. This should be used to inform and help in every facet of, of life and, and society because we can make things better because obviously, like, shit didn't work <laughs> a lot of times in the ancient world. So, you know, I, I find it so interesting when I see people getting really mad when they see academics actually just like using their knowledge of the ancient world and then you know kind of try to find the parallels with the modern world I mean I remember I remember when Kara Cooney's book when women ruled the world came out mm. in 2018 there were so many people who were like so pissed because they were like she's just she's just taking culture and like gluing it on and she can't she's not qualified to make this assumption if this is more near I like I heard people saying this is more narrative this is not factual at all this is not historical and I'm like yeah, but says who? Because she's just taking what she knows of the ancient world and then making a parallel and then kind of supposing what would happen if you kind of synthesize the knowledge together. I'm like, why are people afraid of this? I'm like, you know, why? <laughs> I'm just like, I always get so confused and I'm like, but then why are you studying this? Well, and the idea that there is a version of history out there that isn't like a narrative that someone's putting together, like, that's all history has ever been is people are taking things and crafting them into a narrative. Like it's, you know, a sort of like a timeline. And even then, like, what do you include and what do you not include? Like there is no version of history that isn't a narrative of some sort. And so like, if you object to the narrative someone is making out of it, fine. Like you can object to that and say like, I think there's a better narrative and here are my reasons. But 
to act like people like, oh, this person has an agenda and this person, like everyone has an agenda and has a narrative that they like that, that is not like, we only raise that argument when we don't like someone's interpretation and someone's narrative and someone's story that they're, they're drawing out of it. But it's always like history has always been making a narrative out of discrete, like what, what meaning, what is the cause and effect that I want to draw here? Like all of that is, is narrative making, is story making. When it's not the, the normative kind of like elite white man seeing himself in history, when he sees like that's, that is just objective history. But when someone else sees themselves in a historical moment and, and draws out those parallels instead, like then it's, you know, then they have an agenda. So yeah. I mean, talking about agendas, I know that you specialize in tragedy. So obviously Euripides, like Trojan women is one of the most remarkable things that I read. I've always loved it. But in terms of like agenda, okay, so if we don't like Euripides sort of portrayals, ideas of things, you know, how do you feel about something that's pretty much the, the same cast of characters, but with a different agenda, like their portrayal in Natalie Haynes, A Thousand Ships? I will say... I love, for the most part, like, and I, this is something I've been wrestling with for the last year or so, and I have not read a thousand, I, I have a thousand ships, I should, I, it's, like, I can literally see it right now, and I haven't read it yet, but it's, it's on my summer, my summer reading list. The, for the most part, I tend to side on the, like, anybody can, can retell myths, like, that's what ancient people were doing, like, I, retelling myths is, is good and fine, and it's, you know, these are, malleable stories that we can do whatever we want with. And Jess Zimmerman has a book that came out not too long ago, um, Women and Other Monsters. And oh, I love it so much. And part of what she does is like takes 10 or so different mythological figures and like they're different chapters that are like essays about, you know, her own engagement with Medusa and how she, and like Medusa can be a story about a ton of different things. And there's not like a right and wrong, like, oh, this is a story about X. Like there's not a clear moral of any of these stories, but, you know, she talks about, you know, these different like ways that she sees connections between like her own life or politics or whatever, and these different stories. Um, And I, I tend very much to think like, like, great, this is like, these are, these are things that have been available for hundreds, thousands of years. There's no reason that anybody shouldn't retell this story in a way that that they want to and like let's you know see Cersei's side of the story so I I tend for the most part to be on the side of like these belong to anybody that wants to use them to do whatever they want to do with but I will say I do think there are some I don't know this is this is where I run into a little bit of not being sure how I feel about some of the story some of the versions of like the Hades Persephone story um people you know have been talking a lot about that and like versions that like elide or excuse uh, sexual assault. And I don't know, I, I mean, I, I'm still kind of wrestling with where I think I draw the line between like a responsible and an irresponsible telling of a story that like stories that empower people versus stories that are gonna do harm somewhere in there. And as a baseline, I do think that anyone, anyone has claim to these stories, anyone who wants to tell a story about Demeter or Hera or Zeus or you know whatever like they they can they can tell those stories yeah I don't know it, it does get a little complicated with some of the ends to which people have like I can disagree with the ideology of a version of a story that someone wants to, to put together which doesn't mean they don't have the right to tell their own story but I think I think I come down on the side of you're allowed to tell whatever story you want but I'm allowed to not like it for reasons um which you know is not to say like you can't tell a different story of Persephone there are not stories that are off limits, but I do think there are stories that are not benefiting 
the readers or the society that consumes them, I guess. And also I, I will read a thousand ships. I know I need to. <laughs> I will just go on record and advocate yet again for how amazing that book is. I mean, really, it's one of my favorites of all time. And I was really surprised how much I loved it. I was like, okay, just another, you know, classically inspired. No, it's so good. I won't spoil it for anyone who has not read okay. it, but I will just say everyone needs to read this book because it's fantastic. <laughs> I will I will follow up once I have read it. Like I said, I, I was having a bit of, of kind of decompressing after the semester and now I'm I'm getting, you know, I'm I'm easing into like research reading, but I've also been kind of burning through some fun, some fun reading books. And that is very much on my fun reading uh, book list. Well, you know, fun reading is great on planes. And if, that's uh, true since you're doing travel it, it's it's really good for for planes uh when i when i flew over to greece i listened to the audiobook version of it because natalie uh-huh. herself reads it and she has this like perfectly oh. soothing voice and you get like all of her emotion and oh my gosh i mean i think i love the audiobook more than i did when i read the physical version which is rare because i usually enjoy the physical but there was something about like hearing Natalie read it. And I was like, oh, that's what she meant. Oh, I read this completely wrong in my head. Like, oh, I was like getting the emotion messed up. Oh, that's what she meant. It was great. I think there is something nice about, yeah, getting like the emphasis and the inflection and stuff that the author was like had in mind when they were writing things. Yeah, I I do have the, the paper copy. So I will probably at least start with the, the hard copy. But um, I love the Circe audiobook, which is not not narrated by Madeline Miller, but I I thought it was just really well read. I listened to it when I was driving. I was moving out because I know I was going to be teaching it the first semester that I was here. And so I was moving across the country. And as I was like driving across states, I was I was listening to to Cersei. And I thought the the narrator for that was just really lovely. It was it was a nice, you know, and and a nice thing to keep me company is like Montana's a huge state. <laughs> it was a lot of Montana and it was really nice to have something fun to keep me company on that ride. Oh, I'm so excited. I, cause I just got the audiobook of Cersei and I was like, I'm really yep. looking forward to it. Cause it. everyone was like, Oh, not only we love the story, but you'll love the narrator. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I know. I was like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited. I have to just finish the other audiobook that I started, yeah. which is, I still have like 11 hours and that to go. And I'm like, you know, maybe I could just skip. And I'm like, no, the completionist in me is like, no, finish the book, Lexi, just finish the book. And then you can yeah. start the, the next one. I'm like, okay, okay, fine. I'll do it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have such a hard time walking away from like once it started. I'm like, no, I like I have to finish it. I have I have to. It's a problem. Um, but right? we can we can compare notes after after we've each, you know, after you've read Cersei and I've read a thousand ships, we can we can compare notes. Great. Look at that. We'll have to do a follow-up show. Like, okay, so what did you, know, you, book, think? Book, what do you book, think? Book club follow-up. Yeah. Book club. Oh, <laughs> I'm so here for that. Yes, 100 percent But in terms of also just like fabulous storytellers, I mean. So what was it about tragedy specifically that you love? Because, I mean, I did have an affinity for the tragedies. I mean, you know, I was swayed. I would like, I, I like to say that I was, I was courted quite heavily by the, uh, the comedians, but there's something so special about tragedy. So what was it about tragedy for you that you were like, no, 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 this is, this is what I'm doing. So the first, I will say like the first text that really like brought me about classics um, was Medea. And we were discussing it in class and it was something where someone in my, in my discussion section, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was, I remember like clearly it was coming from the back of the classroom. Somebody had like, it was some version of like, it's just something very like dismissive and misogynistic. And I was coming off of 
a breakup and I was in no mood and like just remember like whipping around and being and like just being so fired up about like excuse me let me explain <laughs> she had there are a lot of things Jason's a douchebag like that moment has sort of stayed with me just because there was not something so like I started off in engineering then I was like maybe I want to be history then like no I, I, science so like it was physics I, I did not graduate on time. Um, there were, it was a long meandering path, but the amount of sort of like passion that I had about that discussion was something that kind of stayed with me. And a friend of mine had told me, cause I was like, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to major in. And he was like, if you, if you find something where the homework doesn't feel like a chore, like that's, you know, that's, that's the dream. Like you find something where you like really enjoy the work that you have to do for the class. It doesn't feel like work. And, and classics did that. I think the thing about tragedies that I is that puts it's a situation where like there there isn't a good answer and I think that like everyone is sort of has a point in some ways or like most people have a point in some ways and it's this unsolvable problem like that that a good tragedy is set up in a way where like there isn't there isn't an answer the meat of what a tragedy is doing is like people trying hard to find an answer when there isn't a there there isn't a way where everybody can win and everything can be okay. I think there's something really that is an extremely human experience to be like, oh no, there's no way that everything will work out here. Like what do we do in the face of bad things are going to happen? Um, but also the fact that like if they work really well for talking, I mean I think that's part of the timelessness of these tragedies is that most of them it's it's a very understandable conflict where so if you think about something like I don't know like Oedipus right like he doesn't do anything I mean I guess he shouldn't have been mad like there was a little road rage moment there but for the most part like all of the steps he takes are so understandable right like they're what anyone would do in that situation like he's he's trying to do his best and he's just walking like step by step into disaster and he's not at no moment are you really like within the play at least at no moment are you do you think that he makes like a, a clearly wrong you can understand where he's coming from at every step along the way um or like Antigone right like you have I mean Antigone's not wrong like it sucks to leave your brother unburied like that's that's messed up but also Creon's not entirely wrong in that like I mean how many more people need to suffer you just had a massive effectively like a civil war and I don't know is it fair like maybe one this ruling family who has done so much harm to the city of Thebes like all the normal people are suffering maybe Antigone like maybe the family of Oedipus just needs to take an L here and like sorry I guess your brother isn't going to get buried but if that allows the city to have some semblance of like closure and moving on and we're not going to have more problems how much does a city need to suffer for one messed up family like and I think I think that tension of I know this thing is right and I want to do what's right. I'm like, yeah, but sometimes your role of being someone who lives in a community and someone who lives in society means that you can't do the thing that you you really think is right. Like maybe everyone else's well-being needs to take precedence over that. And so like I think those kind of unsolvable conflicts, like Antigone and Creon can't both get their way and they both kind of have points. And what do you do with that? So yeah, I think. I guess one of the things that I'm really interested in also about classical literature is the way that, especially tragedy, like the way that you can use this fictionalized setting. Um, it's a little bit more distant from your your day-to-day -day life, right? Like it's a little bit removed. 
as a way to talk through really difficult problems, that you have this kind of fictionalized version of how you, and all of your citizens, right? Everyone comes into the theater and you all see a, a play and it ends, you know, horribly because that's how it usually does. And then you leave the theater and you're like talking about like, well, was it like, what should Creon have done? I don't know. Like it's, and, and that it's something that has the capacity to generate conversations about these like really existential questions of what it is to be a person who lives with other people. <laughs> um, so I think like the, the political resonance while also not being overtly like, what should we do about Sparta? Um, like, I think, I think I love, I love uh, comedies as well, but I think like they are much more like, what should we do about Sparta with some like lols and dick jokes and stuff floated in there. Whereas like, I think the tragedy, because it's a little more separate, I think it gives people an ability to engage with the ideas without the immediacy of like, no, but my uncle supports Sparta and I hate him so much. Like, right. It, it's separates that and gives you a chance to think through some of these questions and then bring them back to bear on, on your contemporary discussions and things that are going on. I couldn't agree more. And also that made me think, so you must love Miyazaki's work because I find it very, uh, not all of his movies, obviously, but a lot of them kind of do the same thing. I mean, I guess the one I'm thinking of right now is like Princess Mononoke, right? Where they're like, like they all could kind of be villains they're, they all could kind of be heroes. I mean, they're certainly heroes in their own stories, but, you know, you leave that movie and you're like, well, did they win? Who, who actually <laughs> won, right? Yeah, and I mean, I love I love the way you said, like, they're, they're all heroes in their own stories, right? Like, because I think, and that is, I mean, now you know, people talk about, like, main character syndrome or whatever, but it's that idea of, like, everyone thinks they're the good guy. Everyone thinks they're the hero. Everyone thinks they're what does it mean when you have like eight heroes whose stories are intersecting with each other? Like, what do you, I mean, my, my favorite musical of all time is Into the Woods. And it is very much one of these, like, okay, like what you do have, like all these different characters who are getting to speak for themselves. And, you know, you have your Prince Charmings and you're this, and, and like these stories that are intersecting with each other, like what, what happened, you know, you do have like six or eight main like heroes or main characters who are, trying to navigate a world together and it's kind of a mess that's what I love about these complicated ones yeah I because one of my favorite musicals obviously I'm so cliche I swear Les Mis of course so I'm always like but is Javert like an actual villain but he's just trying to like do his job that's the law like you know and then I have other friends who are like no he's horrible you should give him a second chance I'm like yeah okay but like honey this is like 17 whatever no 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 <laughs> they're they're not big on like second chances oh you've changed but also I'm like but honey he stole bread to feed a child like mm, mm, <laughs> so I'm just you know I love I like the thing that I really okay so people complain all the time about like oh like we're always rebooting the same stories and and like I get that like it, you know tell tell more tell stories that aren't just like owned by Disney like fine but the idea like retelling the same stories is a very Greek thing right of like okay but what if like Achilles was different than he like what if you know what if Helen never even went to Troy like what about that um and these kind of like what if scenarios which I think are such an interesting, like tell, telling it from someone else's perspective. And we get a lot of like Wicked or, you know, we get a lot of these stories of like telling it from a different character's perspective. 
but I think that that's such a like I, I love that impulse as much as a lot of people like roll their eyes like oh good we're getting another version of like another Spider-Man how many Spider-Mans do we need but I think there is something really interesting about like okay like you think you know the story but what if you're like what if you empathize with someone else in that story what if like the motivations are different how does that change how you feel about it like you know you tell that story like much more funneled through Javier's perspective and like I don't you know you have a story about like someone who just like really you know he's trying to do his job and you know it sucks but like it's a, it's a job and he's got a kid so like you gotta you know I mean <laughs> I think there's I guess like one of the things that I think literature should like when when we are doing literature stuff or humanity stuff well it does cultivate empathy which does not mean that everyone who studies like history is going to develop a, a like finely tuned empathy and compassion I think that that's a I think sometimes we act like humanities do that by default and like done well yeah I do think they cultivate empathy and humanity and like make us more compassionate people but it doesn't happen without some effort there but I think these stories that make you think about things from other people's perspective and like imagine what it would be like to be in a situation that you've never actually experienced and so yeah I think like these ones were you know like who whose side are you on I mean you could kind of see somebody's perspective and what are you know what are they supposed to do there I mean that's one of the reasons that when people I have a little chip on my shoulder about how some people who would cast uh Oedipus Rex as a play about like terrible leadership who wouldn't listen like there's a disease and people who wouldn't listen like I get that that's a very contemporary moment of like oh leadership that won't listen to like people are getting sick and leadership isn't going to to respond to it okay like yes I see what you're doing with that but like he's not intentionally trying to be a dick and I think these things like flatten out the like it's it's a classic tragedy like it's it's the tragedy that we always like go back to as like oh the quintessential tragedy because it's so well constructed that like what did he do wrong Apollo just hates his family for some reason like fate just hates his family like every he he made a lot of perfectly good decisions along the way and like does he get a little paranoid at points? Sure, I guess. But like, he hears that there's a problem and he does everything he can to try and solve it because he wants people to have, he wants their lives to be better. By all evidence, he seems to be a pretty good ruler. The people like him. I mean, how was he supposed to know that the people he felt like, no one told him he was adopted. Like, how was he supposed to know that? He makes perfectly rational decisions based on the evidence and the information he has available. And so, yeah, I guess I, I feel like the ability to of a play to put you in this position of oh my god I can see where this guy who like out out the gate your main character killed his father and is sleeping with his mother that does not seem like a character you're gonna be like oh no yeah I'm I'm on his side like I get it like I I see where he's coming from but like once you actually get into that story I don't know it just like step by step you're you're kind of with them for every step of the way and you just see how someone ends up in this horrible situation. No, it's interesting. So, so two things that sparked, cause I, cause I loved everything you just said. So it, it sparked, it's of course it's sparking more than two things, but I'll try to keep it at two. But the first is, yes, it's interesting. I, I don't mind actually that we like to retell the, the same stories. I do see the inherent value. I will say though, I do take issue with the Spider-Man one only because 
I don't recognize any other Spider-Man actor other than the original Tobey Maguire because I think he did such a great job. I know people are like, no, he's a bit too old for the role. I'm like, I don't care. I grew up in that era. Tobey Maguire is my Spider-Man. But also I will say it's a bit controversial and all my friends know it, but my favorite Spider-Man, it's the third one because people are like, oh no, but he got all creepy and weird and the Venom thing and it got a little rambly. But I liked it, I think, because like you, I'm very drawn to the sort of tragedy element. And I loved actually narratively what they did with the whole Flint Marco. Like you don't really know about him other than he's Sandman. So he's scary and he's attacking. But then when they did devote some screen time to setting up the, his daughter was sick. He was, you know, just trying to get the money for her operation. And then he lost everything and then blah, blah, blah. And it blew up in his face because he didn't even commit a murder. And like, I loved that, you know? So people, you can say what you want about the third Spider-Man. But the fact that Flint Marco, like, I, I feel robbed that we didn't get more background on Flint Marco. So I did really enjoy that the most recent, the No Way Helm, like, brought all of them mm-hmm. together. Like, I, I really did enjoy, like, seeing me. I was like, oh, my God, I totally forgot about that thing that happened there. And like, oh, man, like, I really and I, I really enjoy that type of like, I know some people don't always like the. I don't know, sort of like the breaking the fourth wall mm-hmm. or like, you know, the Deadpool, like ta- being super like meta aware of, of the, you know, those kinds of things. I get that that's not for everybody, but I, I did really enjoy. It felt very like, yeah, you got like, you know, you got to see Tobey Maguire again and they were all like teaming up. And I was like, oh, this is delightful. We have three Spider-Men and it, it felt like the same impulse of the um, Into the Spider-Verse, yeah. uh, the animated yeah. one where like we're thinking about like just thinking about all of the different because for years I have this little handout of when I would talk about Greek mythology because people always were like what's the real version I'm like I don't and that's that's not the right question that we ask about (laughs) mythology because like there isn't a like there just like there isn't canon in the way that we think about like you know what what is the actual origin story for this person and I had this little handout with like all the different people who played Batman in my lifetime and like you know they're all Batman and there's certain things that have to be the same like you can't tell a Batman story where there's not like a bat connection and his parents die like that's kind of a through line but beyond that you can play with all the details it can be campy it can be you know dark and darker and you know there's there's lots of but there there are some through lines and like that had always been my like my way that I framed what how mythology works but I love the idea that now we've got a movie that has all the Spider-Men, <laughs> like you got Spider-Ham and you got, you know, Spider-Man, you got this, you got that, and like putting all of them in something together. Like, yeah, they're, they're all Spider-Men. It's fine. It, they can all coexist. Like one doesn't have to be right to the exclusion of others. So I, I really enjoyed that. Part. But yeah, I, I'm very okay with Again, I, I so I, I like this the all of the superhero stuff because I think it's it does a lot of what I like about Greek mm-hmm. mythology that you know we're we're exploring these different issues. I don't always love the ideology, like what what I think kind of the the dominant message that a movie is trying to convey. I don't always like those, but I'm very okay with like I don't yeah sure why not we gonna do with it we'll do a what if we'll do you know all of these different iterations of like the massive Disney world of, you know, you've got your, your Star Wars and you got, you know, all of these different things that are, are universes that are going, like, I can disagree with the execution, but I, I am very okay with the idea of retelling basically same or similar stories. I'm, I'm fine with it. I get why people get annoyed of it, but 
I mean, I you know, know man. Su- superhero stories, you know, they're, they're <laughs> I mean, they last for a reason, but it's interesting because I mean, we haven't really had to retell it because it's just kind of been running and running and running. But um, one of my favorite musicals is Phantom of the Opera. And I'm always just like, so wait, who's the villain? I mean, is it Phantom? Because like, but he's not. But but I mean, you know, because some people are like, no, it's clearly creepy. And he's just like being inappropriate. And then he's like, you know, getting her like to, to, to come down to his cave. And it's like all creepy. And I'm like, yeah. And then you tell it from like her side. And then she's like, no, but I really thought this was like my angel guardian person but he's like helping me with my career and so you know i i don't know when when you get to the end of the story you know and you're kind of like yeah but she's actually conflicted i mean okay she didn't really get a good choice because it was like yeah watch her lover die or you know (laughs) um stay but but she didn't end up doing and he was like okay fine i'll let you go so you know he's he's kind of one of those that needs redemption and you know that i i guess you know my nerddom for musicals is kind of really coming out really strong in this episode. I didn't, I didn't think it was gonna, <laughs> I love it. I'm here for it. But you know, I, I, one of those other ones that I keep thinking about, about who's, who's really the villain and, and what's right and what's wrong is um Miss Saigon. Cause we keep redoing Miss Saigon's. And I remember with, with the reboot, I really wanted to go see it when I was in New York. Cause I'm just like, well, who's, who's who's the villain who's not i mean i'm not gonna sit here and go through the whole plot of miss saigon if you really want to know <laughs> you can uh, watch it or find it but but it's just so interesting because i'm like well what if we had miss saigon but retold from chris's perspective you know how different i wonder would that be yeah and i mean i i get like i, I really love that kind of of exploration and if i if i can just get on my like soapbox for a mm-hmm. moment um because i really I would say like Phantom of the, like if, if we imagine this being a real life situation, like, you know, per the book, the age difference is kind of creepy. Like it's kind of predatory and kind of creepy. Sure. But I mean, this kind of like when people want to talk about this, this comes up every year when I teach Medea and like, well, she shouldn't kill her kids. Like it's bad to kill your kids. Like, sure. But like, this is a fiction, like we're in a, we're in an imagined world. And like, to some extent we have to like, you can you can think about the real life implications of these things but also like I can watch a Quentin Tarantino movie and not think it's okay to go murder anybody that's ever wronged me like you know I can watch a Batman movie and also in real life think it's not like I can be rooting for Batman and I can also be like you shouldn't go vigilante stuff in real life like there is there is a difference between like the stories that we consume and it's not like there's not any connection between the stories we consume in real life there's plenty of connections between them but I think there is a extent to which sometimes we act like, like, ah, well, this behavior is like not acceptable. Like, okay, but we're in a fictional space and we're telling stories and it's, it's weird to think that you can't separate those. Like I can be rooting for Medea to take like all kinds of gruesome revenge and also not think that it's okay. Like for me to go murder people who have wronged me in real life. Like those can, those can coexist because like, you know, it's it's fictional and it's get get bothered when people want to be like too literal with things that are like it's a it's a story and not everyone has to be a good person in every story. <laughs> like you have complex characters in artificial situations. That is part of how fiction works. I think it's more compelling that way. Honestly, I hate it when it's so binary, good and evil. And I'm like, okay, fine. I mean, okay, you can. It's not, I'm not saying we should never have a story where it's like clearly good and clearly evil. But I'm just, yes, I find storytelling so much more compelling. It's boring. It's boring as a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no. It's like that's a very preachy like morality tale of like ah, then good wins and bad loses and everybody's happy. The end. Like, 
that's that's not an interesting story like that's not a compelling tension mm -hmm. like you you need to humanize your villain you need to like there needs to be it's just fundamentally not how stories work and when we think about i mean going back to talking about like history and like people making a narrative about uh, you know in, in history books like our entire lives are mediated by like how stories work right like we think in terms of stories and narrative arcs and things and for people to not think deeply about i mean again i think that's one of the things that you can get like you don't need to have any languages to closely look at stories like ancient stories and think about like why these stories are compelling like that i think analyzing how stories work and how stories pull us into them and operate like activate our emotions or manipulate our emotions or whatever it is like i think that is such an important thing that you gain from reading literature and like you can get that perfectly well from reading it in English. You're engaging with it in a different way than you would by reading it in Greek, but you can read the Odyssey in English and still be like talking about like all of the complexities of Odysseus. And he's an absolute sociopath, but he's also like, you're rooting for him and he's compelling and he wants to get home and he's clever and we respect that, but also like he murders a lot of people and he's a liar and he's, you know, you can grapple with the complexity of this like incredibly like layered and ornate and, and fascinating story. And you don't need to be doing it in Greek to, to get all of that out of it. No, I don't need to read it in Greek to know that he's the worst like philanderer, but also kind of like the most faithful because even though he cheats on his wife for how many years, he's also like, but I love my wife so much and I need to get home to her. And I'm like, okay. And I mean, he does choose his wife over immortality. Like that's not nothing. Mm -hmm. Like they, you know, the... I don't know. Like that, I mean, that's the thing. Like, there, it's not a clear good and bad. Like, you you root for him while also being like, no. But in some ways, like, you're really a, a monster. And I just that's one of the things I love about the Odyssey that it it's so complex. Like that that is an interesting story. And the ways that when you start like untangling it, you start to see all of these other details. And like, wait, but I thought this, but now I'm now I'm thinking maybe this because when I think about like, what if he's lying about that thing? And like, there's always more layers that you can kind of peel away in the odyssey and i mean that's thinking i mean you could spend you know you could spend years trying to like thinking about all of the different elements of of the odyssey and like how we engage with it and what does it say about us that we over the years i have like very much like had a different relationship to like how i read odysseus depending on who I am at that point in my life. Like, do I see myself as like a lone hero having adventures? Do I see myself as someone who just like really wants to, to get home, who wants to have some stability, who wants to, do I see myself as Penelope? Do I see myself as Nausicaa? Do I see myself like, you know, where, where you recognize yourself in a story, I think changes over the, the years based on like what, what things resonate with you the most at that time. And so but anyway, yeah, I think like when we when we don't think about how stories work and we're just like, oh, well, our hero is bad. So this story is a bad story like that is that is absolutely like a simplistic way to think about things that are so much more complex than that. For sure. So I could go on and on and on in the popular culture and stories realm forever. And I know that we don't have years and years and years to do it. So I will conclude sort of the <laughs> section with, with one question because I'm so curious because I know that we've also done work on like symposia and symposium culture. And I'm just kind of curious, like symposium in Assassin's Creed Odyssey see long been interested in the you can go back to like narrative potential of things like games that are sort of on rails right like diablo like you 
you just, you do the things and you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. Whereas like games that are more kind of like sandbox open where like there isn't a clear or like, you know, something in like the D&D model of storytelling where like you get to make decisions and the story is going to look different. Like that's in terms of the relationship between like author and consumer. I think video, like we have the technology to make really interesting, like choose your own adventure, but way cooler than the, you know, the, the choose your own adventure books where you have like four choices. That are, and I, I find that to be really interesting. These, these games where it's not like, here are the steps you have to go through and you don't have a ton of options, but the, the games that give you like a more open-ended way of, of experiencing the story. So a, a question that legitimately the answer was, I haven't played it. Sorry, I don't know. I'll get back to you. Um, but the idea that like, does what the author intended matter, right? Like, do, I mean, do they want it to look like a Greek tragedy? I don't like, does it, does it matter what they wanted? If, if you like this version better, if you make the choices that take you in a different way, like, does it matter what the game makers like wanted? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I feel like a lot of in a lot of instances, like literary analysis, we've gotten away from like what did Sophocles intend? I don't know, like what is in the text? Like mm -hmm. let's let's work from what's mm -hmm. in the text. It doesn't matter what like Sophocles thought or meant or whatever, like he's real dead. Um, so, you know, what what meaning does the reader generate from it? And and like that kind of approach is something that's much, much more how most literary studies do, kind of the reader response um, idea. But yeah, with games, like I'm just really interested. And there's been a lot of cool work that, thinking about how that changes our ideas about like storytelling when it is a story that is legitimately kind of like branching off in a bunch of different directions. And there isn't, there isn't a story, mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. is, is really compelling. And like, if we go back to thinking about stuff like the Homeric tradition, like composition of stories, where I think it provides an interesting inroad to thinking about stories that don't have a fixed form. Because like that's, you know, people fight all like, was there a Homer? Was there one Homer? Were there a bunch of people that made the idea of a Homer? Like with Homer, the friends we made along the way, like what, what is a Homer? I think this idea of a story that doesn't have a fixed form is, is really fascinating. So anyway, I will report back once I have played Assassin's Creed. Please do. I mean, I will tell you from talking to several friends who worked on that game, they, their intent was really kind of behind the marketing push of choose your own odyssey it you you we want you to make it what you want it to be so if when you're playing if you were curious their intent is they want you to just make all the decisions and get the result you want to hear so definitely we'll check back with you for that but to conclude the sort of interview portion of the podcast i have uh, three final questions for you one okay. did you attend office hours for either undergrad or grad school or both both Though in grad school, it's in grad school, it's a little different just because you have a different relationship with the professors. So it was more like walking down the hallway and seeing if a professor was in their office and then just being like, hey, can I come in? I have some questions, um, which is a little different than like the fixed office hours uh, that there were an undergrad. But I would say both, both in different ways. OK. Do you have a favorite memory or conversation or experience from being in office hours? So the TA that I had for um, for mythology was an like absolute trooper. Um, this is like a sad memory, but like, I mean, not a sad, but I was writing a paper. I, I grew up like very sort of evangelical. And this was causing me to be like, oh my God, is everything I've ever known a lie? And like, I was in like, I moved from like a small town to like a big college. And I was, I, I was having a rough time with just a lot of stuff. And somehow this paper on like Dionysus, was just the last straw and I was like oh my god like I don't 
I don't know anything anymore. Like, I don't know what I believe. I don't know, like, what is my place in the universe? I'm very, this TA was such an absolute, like, went way above and beyond uh, the, the call of duty and like bought me a copy of Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth, which like at this moment was just something that I really, as I was trying to figure out, like, but then like this thing that I was told, like, if that's a lie, then what do I do about like, and, and it was something that was so meaningful and like sat like again this is I mean I think most people's absolute nightmare of like office hours of someone like crying about like what is God and myth and religion and oh my god I don't like who am I anymore and it was a very meaningful like I think it actually I don't know if it exists anymore in Berkeley but Cafe Intermezzo like had a very large salad um delicious salads and like cried into my very large salad and he but like it was I'm still I'm still in touch this um Mont Allen uh who teaches at Southern Illinois University he has no recall of like almost all of this conversation that was like so like (laughs) he and I uh caught up I was I was in town and and we went and and hung out and he has like almost no recall of this like very significant moment in in my undergraduate life but I was it was a nice chance to be able to tell him like how much how much all of that meant to me as as someone who like my studies were causing a like an existential crisis and um he was very kind and compassionate and and kind of helped fit my understanding of the world into like if not the religious understanding I'd had before like is there still a place for some kind of like myth some kind of of way of understanding the world in in terms of these kind of things so anyway that I think is, is a, a weird sad but happy memory of <laughs> it was sort of office hours and bless him for being willing to <laughs> I have I have yet to have a student I, I really owe it to the universe to like pay that forward if a student needs to come talk to me about like like I, I will buy them a book and and walk them through an existential crisis because I I owe like the universe something like that I think no that's great I love hearing those there's conventional ones where it's like yes they walked me how to do that I love the weird ones though where you got existential I had someone walk someone through how to do taxes and I'm like okay that's a new one but sure let's <laughs> go with that so no I love those and I mean I I did have a very important professor as well she had the chocolate drawer though so whenever I was having a normal non-existential crisis, but I was still stressed, you know, I could just like go grab bucketfuls of chocolate and, and just like spirit in and out of her office. So I, I do stock a lot of snacks in my office now. Like there are like, you know, like granola bars and trail mix and candy. And, you know, there's, there's a range of things for whatever, whatever people need, but there's, there are always snacks in my office now. See, so. no, you're, yeah. So you're one of the smart ones. Cause you know, food gets people to come real quick. <laughs> I do. I, I tell Stu, I'm like, if you, you know, you come ask, but like there's, you can come get a snack. You got a little bit of time between classes. You can come talk to me about like, doesn't have to even be class. You can come talk about class or just like, Say hey, see what's up, and also get a granola bar. Exactly, and get some food. There's, there's no downside. Exactly, if you're hungry, yeah. like if you skip lunch, hey, you know where to go now. I had one student who would regularly, like, you know, and I got to know her super well because she, like, she, it was, it was a perfect. She, she needed a snack, and you know, like, I've got like half an hour between classes. Can I just like hang out here and do some homework and eat some food? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Oh. And you know, got to know her super well as a result. So it was, it was great. That's what I did with my professor. Anyway, now being in the professor's chair, not, you know, a student. So from the other way, the other perspective, you know, 
if you were to, you know, con- try to convince or talk to students who are a bit hesitant about this whole office hours thing, because ooh, getting to know professors, that's kind of scary and weird. But, um, you know, why should students come and, and talk to their professors in office hours? Oh, my God, there's many reasons aside from snacks. So also snacks, mm-hmm. getting just time where you get to know each other as people, like outside of specifically, because especially class time is at such a premium a lot of times where like, we have, you know, we need to really like, we got a lot of discussion, we got a lot of stuff we read, we got to talk through it all, we got to, you know, get you ready for your paper, whatever it is. And oftentimes there isn't that space for, and you know, you can't have a conversation with one student to the exclusion of the whole rest of the class. And so I think office hours are such a good chance to get to know people, like as people, like I get a a chance to know my students and I think they enjoy getting to know more about me as like a person, you know, talking about my dog or like other like hobbies I have, dumb stuff I've been, you know, reading or watching or whatever. But also on a more practical level, like I think seeing each other as people make like if there are problems that come up, I think it makes it a lot easier for students. Like, God forbid, there is a real problem, like a crisis of some sort that needs to be addressed. I think students are a lot more willing to come talk to professors when the professor doesn't seem like someone very separate from them who's like, you know, way over there, that's professor and here are students. And so I think that ability, I never make students, I don't require students to come to office hours, even though I know some people like require you to come to a meeting just to like check in and like know where the office is, know like what an office hour is. But, and down the road when, you know, students like need a letter of recommendation or anything like that, or I don't know, just interest they have that a professor might have you know like oh that would be actually a really great project to do for this class because like you know I know that you're interested in music here's a way that you could do like a music tie-in for for this kind of class thing or I think just having that like network that like academic community there's a ton of upsides to it but it it does also make it a lot easier just from a purely practical perspective to if a student needs a letter of recommendation, if I actually know something about them besides like, well, their work's, their work's good and they're they're punctual and they they talk in class sometimes, but being able to say like, you know, like I know they're really passionate about this particular topic. And, uh, you know, I think like this internship will be really helpful for X, Y, and Z reasons, um, or that they'll bring a lot to it because I know all of these things about them as a more fully rounded person, I think is, is something that's also really valuable. That's a great answer. There's, I mean, there's many more, I think, as we both know, but I, I concur. Uh, <laughs> the, the last thing I ask all guests to do on my podcast is if, you know, if, is, is ask if they will read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias poem. Just after reading this poem, if you would, if you would be able to just, you know, say a couple words and, you know, do you like this poem? If you do, why do you like it? You know, what lessons may it offer us? You know, what, why do people seem to, I don't know why people seem to, you know, love this poem. I, I, people ask me why it's my favorite. And I say, I don't really know other than I like it. There's something about it. I love. So we would, I'd love to hear what you think of this poem. Yes. I, uh, I actually talked to my partner for like an hour about this poem this morning. I was like, I did, I did some prep work. I was like, okay, like I have to talk about this poem. I just like want to, you know, I want to see what you see in it. And I, <laughs> I came very prepared to talk about this poem. I will try and keep it to a few bullet points of like my, the most interesting things I took away from our conversation, but yeah, we talked for like an hour about this poem. Okay. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless lakes of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Okay, so first of all, I do like this poem. I think the the line that always gets the, like, when people think about this poem, it's the look on my works, ye mighty in despair, which is the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about it. And, you know, I think most people think of this as a poem that's about, like, everything passes and, you know, it's all temporary temporary and whatever the part that like as uh, upon rereading it I had kind of not remembered all of the other things that are in this poem <laughs> and so a couple of weird things that jumped out to me were it's filtered like it feels very Plato-ish in that like we have an unnecessary framing device um and I think a lot about like Plato's symposium and how it's recounting things as direct like as like a direct speech of who, like, what did this person say at this party? But then it keeps putting layers of distance in there that like, well, somebody told this other person that's years later and this and that, and these like layers of narrative distance. And I think I'm, I'm sort of first struck by the fact that it's like a traveler from an antique land, which is almost feels like it's trying to give this like appearance of, of legitimacy or authority or credibility. And I don't know, I'm not convinced that this conversation happened in any meaningful way, right? I mean, it feels like potentially a, fully a construct of the poet. But I think that kind of highlights how how many layers we are from Ozymandias and, you know, Ramses or whatever. And like this guy that we're like pretty sure was a great king, but mostly because he has said he is. And can we trust that? And we're looking at an inscription that somebody else put on a statue that somebody else made about this guy and the statue is falling apart and we're getting it from someone who saw it. And it feels like such an interesting, um, like, I don't know, metaphor for how history works. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with incomplete evidence and we're not sure how much we can trust. Like, can, can we get back to an antiquity? Can we get back to these things? Or are we working with kind of fragments and incomplete evidence and, and I think this poem does such an interesting job of like the more you you look closely at it, like the the sculptor Weldo's passions read. I don't know. Did he like we don't know what <laughs> is this an accurate sculpt? Was the sculptor any good? Was and and you know, you have these kind of there's just so many places in this poem that once I started looking closely at it and discussing it, can can we trust this picture? Can we trust like do we know that this is anything like Ozymandias? What were the works? We don't we don't know we just know that they're gone which is if we think about something like Sappho I was thinking I'm working on a paper on Sappho we know that they existed but we don't know what they are and we know they were important but we don't know any of the specifics and so it just feels like such a interesting 
thing to juxtapose with how we study antiquity that like we are making meaning from these things. We are looking at the wrinkled lip, the sneer, like we're looking at the space and being like, oh yes, it's, you know, and, and importing all this meaning to something that isn't, wasn't necessarily like intended or wasn't necessarily there, but it's the meaning that we're making from it, which like also feels like a lot of how we think about like reception of classical antiquity. So anyway, I had a really super fun time. Think, like, you know, who's, whose hands are they? Who's, you know, doing, we, we just like really dug into all kinds of different potential readings. It was really fun to go back and reread this poem and I do like it. And yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily have real answers for like many of the things that my partner and I were debating this morning, but um, I do, it, it was really fun to get to go back and, and reread this poem. I'm glad I, you know, I, I hope that I thought it would be fun just also because since I do love this poem so much, I was like, what's the best way to get everyone to like other people to read this poem to me? So it's not just me. And I was like, oh, force other people to read it to me. But no, 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 no. There was more. But it was also like, if I take so much away from the poem, I was like, I, I, I would like to give this as a gift to other people, especially if they haven't seen it or if they haven't seen it in a very long time. And then they're like, oh my gosh, actually. So I'm, I'm glad that you got so much uh, discussion out of it. And, and I'm, I'm really happy that I was able to do that in preparation for, for podcasting. So when I think of the poem, usually I interpret it as a political statement by Shelley. Maybe it's because I am now in politics and maybe that's how I see the world, but who, who knows? But it's on the ephemeral nature of political power. I see it as, you know, the king who thought his civilization would last forever it's not, it's gone, you you know, and, and we wouldn't know about it except for it's because people went looking, the archaeologists went looking, we wouldn't know who he was as a dude, except for, you know, the work of the artisan who created the statue. And it's, it's really like, he thought he was so great, but you can't, it's to me, it's this reminder that like, you can't do anything alone. I alone can fix it. No, no, you can't. I alone can do it. No, you can't. Because once you're gone, then well, good luck. So that's how I interpret it. And when thinking about it in that context, so the last question I ask every guest is, if you think about it in that way, what is, do we have like a modern Ozymandias in our present culture? Like what's something that we think is so amazing, but like realistically, mm. you know, in, I usually say a thousand years, but I've started trending towards saying 200 because like lol global warming could kill us all so we probably yeah, we may not we may not have yeah <laughs> so 200 years exactly so like 200 years you know what are we gonna look at and be like oh that was a really weird thing that we thought was amazing forever but that really sucks yeah oh that's a really interesting question because i don't know that I think at the time, like, as you know, at the time that Ozymandias was, was living and doing stuff, I don't think that people could have imagined that their entire civilization would be dead and buried and gone, right? Like, I think, I think that's so outside of the framework because, like, you think that you are, like, <laughs> the world as you know, it feels like the only way for it to be. But I don't know. I mean, it's sort of interesting thinking, if you think about it in terms of, like, great civilizations I don't want to be like a real a real buzzkill but thinking about like the U.S. feels like it's in a real point of crisis and I wonder like the sort of global like hegemony and dominance that the U.S. has experienced for like I wonder if that's going to be something that we look back on you know in 200 or a thousand years and like yeah that like that era of what the U.S. was I mean it just feels like we're we're not in an era going forward we're not in an era of kind of lone superpower 
countries, like if we're going to survive for 200 or a thousand years, it feels like we're at a point where that kind of superpowers or like major people in conflict with each other, like it feels like we're going to have to move beyond that. So I would say, yeah, not to be too like, well, the the U.S. empire, I think, is going to, but it does, it does feel like the kind of way that the U.S. has operated for the past I don't know how, you know, and then like we're such a young country if you get like the the era of, of the U.S. compared to like how long some of these dynasties and, and the kind of preeminence of Egypt and pharaohs and things like, I don't know. I, I think that I think that we will probably look back on this particular form of what the U.S. looks like and it might be some trunkless legs and things of like hopefully replaced by something much better and not just by like sand for as far as the eye can see no that's so good that's so good because (laughs) no I swear I've been sitting here and I was like okay I've heard a lot of answers the whole time I've been doing the podcast there's some really good ones I mean yeah people have been saying you know like capitalism or technology whatever but no because I think this is a rare time where I have heard a new one because I don't think anyone's actually said like, did we ever consider that the Pax Americana is going to actually end? And I'm like, no, but that's brilliant. <laughs> Cause I mean, we've only been in Pax Americana since the end of world war two, but that's only cause like, uh, Europe destroyed itself and we literally went in with our money and we're like, okay, we're going to rebuild you now, but you have to love us. Okay, good. Pax Americana. Boom. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, you know, we won't be here to see it, but in 200 years, what the world looks like, because I think it's going to have to be fundamentally, climate change is such a, an issue that isn't a, like, a lone wolf can go it alone and have their, like, that's just not the model that is going to fix this, like, this is a global problem, so yeah, I think, I think the world order is going to look very different, and I think you're right. I mean, my professor's been saying it. My professor, who, I mean, granted, they're, you know, they're like Greeks, so they have a very Greek take. But yeah, no, my democratization professor was like, yeah, we've been living in a Pax Americana. He's like, yeah, that's changing. That's ending. Let's just throw that out now. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I agree. But like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's different to hear that. But yeah, that's that's what we're going with. Okay. Yeah. No, but I yeah, think it's a great I, answer. I, I, would tend to, I would tend to agree with your with your professors. I think it's that's a good answer. I like it. Let's keep it. And so uh, finally, where can people find you? Mostly on Twitter, I guess, at, at Apistone. Um, I it's sort of a mix of classical stuff and also just sort of nonsense and pictures of my dog. But I think most of the stuff that I do in theory over the summer, I will have a lot of things coming out in official publication um, if I get my act together and finish them up. But um, I would, the easiest place to find me is, is definitely on Twitter. Great. People need to just go on Classics Twitter because it can be sometimes a really weird, not fun place, but sometimes there, there it's, it, it has its moments. So. Yeah, it's, and it is a, it is a good place to see when things are happening. Like mm-hmm. there are fights that are not worth getting into, but mm-hmm. there are, it is a good place to see when things are happening. And, you know, when people are giving talks, when someone has published something. Mm-hmm. So there's, it, it has value. It is a yes. good place to meet, meet people and collaborate and it's also a good place to see people fighting about things that you're like nope staying out of that one yeah I will say definitely in the last year I've made so many friends from classics twitter so I will be eternally grateful even if it's the evil bird app which people call it so 
it can be both. It can be mm -hmm. like a very, I mean, one of the many articles that is maybe going to be coming out is talking about kind of classics in the era of, of new media and how that has changed the way that like people make connections and things. So unclear if the volume it's for when, when that will be coming out. But yeah, I have been thinking a lot about the ways that it democratizes or decentralizes how how things happen in, in an academic discipline to have less of, you know, getting back to like getting rid of gatekeeping and things. So I think it is, I've met a lot of, there are a lot of people that I have yet to ever meet in real life, but I, I know from the internet. And I think that's a really nice thing, even though at times there can be less nice things happening on the internet as well. For sure. Well, thank you again so much for joining me this morning, evening, whatever it is. And, <laughs> you know, I definitely want to follow up. Would love to have you back, uh, you know, once you've played some games and read some books and yeah, yes, yeah, once, once you finish, get in touch after you finish Cersei, we'll, we'll, we'll touch base. We'll, we'll do a follow up where we report back on all the things, <laughs> the homework assignments we've given each other. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.